Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Hi there, this is Tom Selinski, the producer of the podcast. Deborah's touring Australia at the moment and hasn't had a chance to get to a microphone, but I wanted to let you know that this is a special episode which we recorded at the BFI last year to celebrate the release in the UK of the film that Deborah wrote, Say My Name. This is a hilarious romantic comedy about a one-night stand gone wrong. It stars Lisa Brenner, Nick Blood, Callan Jones, Mark Bonner and Peter Davison. It is incredibly funny, brilliantly well made and Deborah even has a little cameo appearance in it. As of today, Monday the 10th of February, you can buy or rent it on iTunes or any of the usual places. Please, please give it a go. You won't regret it. And now on with the podcast. I am a feminist, but I was more excited about being invited on set to appear as a guest for the comic relief Four Weddings and a Funeral sequelette than any of the feminist icons I've ever met in person, <laughs> including Gloria Steinem. Ooh. I was genuine. It was so thrilling. I was asked to be like a featured extra by Emma Freud. And I think, to be honest, I was mostly asked because she knew how much I wanted to be in it. I don't think it was really for comic relief as much as it was for me. Um, But when I got there, it was like being in Four Weddings and a Funeral. It was like, imagine if, like, what's your favourite movie? And you're at the BFI, you must have one. Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. Which one? Oh, like the TV version with... Yeah, so imagine you just wander into a room here somewhere at the BFI and there's Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman solving a mystery. And they're just like, oh, why don't you come and talk to us? That's what happened. It was so exciting. Basically, you could resurrect Emmeline Pankhurst and Maya Angelou and I'd be like, I'll skip it. (laughs) If I could have that again. Seriously. I'm not proud. This is why it's a confessional. I'm a feminist, but... For Deborah's feature film, Say My Name. Did you know she'd made a feature film? She's made a feature film. It's going to be premiering tomorrow. (laughs) I lied to the wardrobe department about my measurements. And I have to say that karma really came back and bit me in the arse for that because I then had to spend 12 hours a day, every day for however long I was on set, in jeans that were actually not jeans they were a crime against the female anatomy I I tell you I was like man spreading for weeks afterwards because of the damage done so memo to self never ever lie lie about about your stats ever again oh it's so easy to do though although Mm. a friend of mine this is a true story said she was a size 12 because she was size 12 and she turned up to this tv show and the costume lady came out and she had all these size eights and tens, and she went, oh, I won't fit into that. That's an eight. And she was like, I'm a 12. She was like, I think you could just try it on. And she tried it on, and it didn't fit. And she was like, oh, you're really a 12. <laughs> and she was like, yes. And she was like, oh, most actresses say they're a 12, and then when they get here, they're a sample size. And it's sort of so they have to kind of go down. and like, oh, I don't know. I can't explain it. So she said, when you say your size, you have to mean it. You have to you be like... You do have to mean it. And the, the temptation is to cheat, because if you have a shape... Like, I'm five foot five... On a good day with the wind behind me, I can sometimes get to five foot five and a half. But I have a really big ass. And there's like a 13-inch difference between my waist and my bum. So if you write those stats down on a piece of Sounds paper... Sounds like you're bragging now, to no. be honest with you. <laughs> no, I'm just like... You're losing the sympathy of the audience. Oh, really? 
Wow, do you have a tiny waist and a fabulous booty? No, oh, no, no. this must be awful for you. No, it means that there's a big arse and it means that when you write it down, it looks like you're a pair on legs. And then they think, don't give the job to her, give the job to someone who's easier to fit. Because that's what it's oh, down to. Oh, so you're doing it not for vanity, no, but to make no. sure you get the job. At the end of the day, if it's down to a gig and you're down to the last two actresses, at the end of the day, I am a jigsaw piece. So there is a picture Mm. that is made by the writer and the director and the producer and they have a vision. And there are lots of jigsaw pieces that go in there. And I either fit or I don't. And if it's down to you and somebody else and you've been recalled and recalled again... And And they can't decide between the two of you. They're like, this one is an even 10. This one will fit into what we have in the wardrobe department. It's... Wow. See, if I say I'm a 12... For me, a 12 is down. That's the smallest I can be because my skeleton is a size 12. <laughs> no, it, it is. It is. Look at me. I'm broad. I'm tall. And listen, I am not being cremated because I want this proven. <laughs> I want to be exhumed. I want to be buried and exhumed. And I want this on definitely, definitely. <laughs> I mean, whatever a 12. I mean, a standard. I'm a, Anyway. I don't care. I don't want to be in your movie. Whatever. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but my favourite thing about being on the four weddings at a funeral set (laughs) was so great. So I'm talking to Andy McDowell and Lily James and Alicia Vikander. And uh, we had lots of times between the takes to chat and I was doing my very first... I'd never ever shot a cover before and I was doing the cover of Stylist magazine, so I thought, who, you know, firstly conversation you know what can I say to these very glamorous people and also secondly I genuinely do need advice because Andy McDowell started out she was like a supermodel before she was an actress and the other two are always shooting things I don't know so I said could you give me some advice on posing (laughs) Lily James and Alicia both said look kind of bored or sad and Andy McDowell went oh no don't tell her that that's for women under 30 Wait, she, no, she was, no, she was being Sicily. No, she wasn't, no. I'm not under 30. Did you think I was under 30? And she was like, no, no, honey, no. That's for you. You, you're fine with that. Sure, you can be bored. You can be sad. Sure, flop around. No, once you're over 30, it's lift. It's lift. It's up. It's happy. Everything's sagging. You need to bring it up. <laughs> I was so happy. I was like, this is the greatest advice I've ever had in my life. And I cannot believe I'm getting a friendly video. And there was no bitchiness. She wasn't like, oh, you're over 30. She wasn't saying like over 30 was a negative. It isn't a negative. I mean, when I was under 30, it was a fuckwit. I don't want to go back to that. Why am I trying to spend the rest of my life looking like an emotional fuckwit? That's, oh, doctor, doctor, can you help me look like I don't realize that if I kiss my friend's boyfriend, it's going to cause trouble? <laughs> It's madness. I'm a feminist, but the last time I was at the South Bank, I inadvertently became the kind of stereotypical woman that I've always denied even existed. I was like, don't be a stupid woman like that, don't exist, it's a myth. And I was it, because I was trying to get to an audition at the ITV studios, which are about over there and really, really massive. And in spite of that, ridiculously difficult to find if you're not from London. So I'm wafting around the South Bank and I've gone from being sort of half an hour early, totally cool and calm, to now possibly going to be half an hour late. A little bit of tears beginning to form and I saw these two policemen and I don't know what happened to me because I just kind of flung myself on their bosoms, (laughs) wept a little, blew a snot bubble and and a little bit of dribble and I was like, oh my God, you got to help me, I'm going to be late for And the lovely man actually understood what that meant. And that's how I rocked up at that particular edition in the back of a squad car with an armed police escort. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Got the gig as well. (laughs) I'm a feminist, but when we were on the set of Say My Name, at one point we had to pitch jokes. So we were like all standing around and we were like, what about this, what about this, what about this? was something about a doctor and one of the jokes I mean I was pitching like 10 in a row so it was really quick don't judge me I pitched something that had the kind of tagline of gynecologist in it he's a gynecologist and Nick Blood 
who is the kind of young, hot, sort of stud, you know, leading man, who's like super young as well, just turned to me in front of everyone and went, I don't think we want to make gynecology funny, Deborah. <laughs> I was like, you're right, Nick. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I apologize for pitching that. <laughs> your wokeness. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but sometimes I genuinely think there are very rare occasions when it might actually make life easier if I just pretended not to be. I was moving into my first ever flat, and much as I'm small and dinky looking and sort of stereotypically little woman, which pisses me off because I'm not, equally, my man with a van was stereotypically big and hairy and manly and raw. So I was like, fine. We're lifting the bedside table off the van and the drawer opened and this box of tampons falls out. I don't have a problem with that. I'm a female, I menstruate. Man with a van sort of like, oh, 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 you better carry those. You carry the light box and I'll take the heavy stuff. <laughs> Possibly, with hindsight, what I should have done to make my life easier is just gone, you're so right poor little me would you carry all my big heavy stuff but I didn't I got pissed off and I was like right you bugger I am going to take the biggest heaviest thing from this van myself to my second floor flat and I'm going to have it done by the time you get up and back with my bedside table so there's my king size mattress which is much bigger than me and probably heavier I was like right come on pulled it along and it was on this little plastic thing so it slid along nice and easily got it to the tiny tiny lift which says it takes eight people bollocks it takes two at a time <laughs> ramming this mattress in finally got it to just sort of double over enough whacked number two door shut and I banged upstairs fast as I could got to the second floor and I was like this is perfect timing man with a van is coming out with my flat I'm on the second floor the lift is coming up ping doors open <laughs> And the bastard mattress shot out <laughs> like a bloody wild thing, knocked me to the floor, went over the banisters downstairs to the first floor and left me lying there with a kind of banister-shaped bruise on my forehead and carpet burn thinking, what the hell, why did I not just say, yeah, carry my mattress, mate? <laughs> from the BFI in London, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Abby Hurst, the very special guests, Lisa Brenner and Jason, talking about women making movies, and in particular, Say My Name. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White, with me is Abby Hurst, and we're talking about women making movies, and in particular, our movie Say My Name! So the first thing you need to know is Abby took my role. Um, the producers and the casting director were like, we think you should play this part. And I was like, no, get a real actress. I felt like it was such a good part and the vanity of the writer in me wanted someone who did this day in and day out. So there was another sort of smaller cameo that I really felt I could nail if I was allowed to do my Australian accent, <laughs> my character. Um, so lots of people auditioned for it and Abby got the part and she was genuinely brilliant in it. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm desperately trying to style it out here and not show that my hands are shaking so much the microphone is wobbling. <laughs> You're going to be great. What I really want to say about this movie is that my friend in Hollywood said to me, she's been writing for television for a long time, and she said, women do not get to write movies with gags and guns. Women get to write movies about one woman dying slowly of a rare disease while in love <laughs> or falling in love or... Movies about two women going shopping while drunk. <laughs> Those are our genres. Enjoy. Maybe something about a woman going to India and finding herself through cultural appropriation. Sure. Anything where anyone runs to an airport, but as soon as it's got, like, jokes in it, and as soon as it's got 
guns. Those movies from women don't get made. There's mm-hmm. assumptions about what women can write. And my friends out there, I've got a bunch of friends out there, they're always being asked like to come into writers' rooms and, like, you can write the female voice. And they're like, no, I write story. I write character. I want to write for human beings. I want to write human stories about human beings. And it would be lovely if sometimes those human beings were women. Mm. Why can't that be a thing rather than, you know, well, come in and give your perspective on ladiness and then please leave while we do the (laughs) scaffolding of the story. It's like, so there's a frustration. And of course, there are incredible women making incredible films at the moment, incredible television shows. But it's a slog. It's hard. You have to push and you have to prove yourself over and over and over again. Abby, when did you get the script? I got the script for the edition at very little notice. I'm so so sorry. (laughs) Which is industry standard. That's all right. Not your fault. But one thing that did strike me about that, and obviously I'm not just saying it because I'm here, it was... Again, it's to do with the fact that you're a female writer. I get so many scripts through where there is the token girl part. And you're looking at it just thinking, meh, it's not real. It's badly written. No woman that I've ever met in all my life and hopefully never will meet would behave in this way. So Deborah's script came through and it was achingly funny. And there was no need to even think about construing a character. It was blatantly, blindingly, obviously, there on the page. She was feisty. She was in control. She knew exactly what she was doing. And she was, she was funny in that the way she handled the situation was really stylish and classy and not thought about, which is the way most of us women are. We just get on and do shit. And it was lovely to have a script that shows that we women just get on and do shit. We don't need to have something special written in for us to make us do something special because we just function, strangely enough, like men, usually better. So um, it was really great to get the script. It was one of the only occasions that I could just rock up at the audition and think, this is fine. It doesn't matter that this has come through late because everything I need is in that scene, which is why I love the film and why I would have to kill anybody else that tried to get that rule off me. <laughs> Excellent. I'm so glad I didn't play it now. Um, <laughs> please welcome to the stage, Deborah Francis White. <laughs> I've been trying to make a movie for a long time. 11 years ago, I sold a script uh, to Fox Searchlight. I'd written it with two friends. It was called The Wedding Pact. It was a romantic comedy. Everybody said to me then, you know, yeah, you've sold a script, but it takes 10 years on average to get anything on the screen. It takes 10 years. And I was like, that's for other people. (laughs) That's obviously, they've not taken into account how special I am. (laughs) 11, almost, on the dot. 11 years on the dot. I am one year behind average, (laughs) as it turns out. Three of us had written it. Monica was in LA, and the manager called us and said, this script is definitely going to sell. It's gone into a bidding war, so you need to get on a plane. So Philippa and I, who'd written it too, uh, had to get on a plane. She got on one plane, I got on another plane. And uh, when we landed on the tarmac, I turned my phone on just to sort of text Tom and say I was alive. And Tom uh, texted me back and said, call Monica right now. And I rang Monica and uh, she said, we've sold the script. There's a couple of caveats, but we've sold the script. And then the flight attendant, we're on the tarmac, said, you have to turn the phone off. You cannot be on the phone right now. So I had to turn the phone off. And I'd imagined this moment for so long. And there I was on the tarmac. And honestly, I swear we sat there for half an hour. And I was just on my own. I'd imagined the moment, but I'd imagined champagne. I'd imagined hugs. I hadn't imagined sitting there on my own. with I couldn't tell anyone. And eventually, like, after about 15 minutes of just being like, when are we going to get off this plane? I just turned to the man next to me and said, I'm so sorry, I've just got to tell you, I've just sold a screenplay. (laughs) And he went, yeah, my brother sold a screenplay 10 years ago. They never made it. And I was like, you cynical, cynical man. (laughs) I mean, he was right in retrospect. They never made it. But but then the guy next to me said, "Um, I couldn't help overhearing you sold a script. And I was like, yep. And he went, who's doing the music? I was like, what? He said, do you have a composer? I was like, no, literally just now. I just got the call. I don't know. And he was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm a composer. And he gave me his card. I wasn't even officially in America yet. And I was like, this is like a microcosm. This is a microcosm of Hollywood. Somebody telling you it's not going to happen. Someone else trying to get a job. And 
so we get out and we go to Searchlight and they tell us it's the greatest script that they've ever read and they're going to fast track it. I mean, that was 11 years ago. But then our manager said, you now have to pitch uh, your other ideas because when you sell a script, everyone in town wants to meet you and so get your other ideas ready. And we were like, we have no other ideas. We've been working on this for two years. This is our idea. And he was like, well, you need other ideas because you've sold that idea. You can't sell that idea again. Get in a car. Here are some meetings. And it was the old days, like before sat-navs and, you know, it was like someone with an A to Z and, you know, somebody's driving. So we, all from an improv background, so we were literally making up ideas in the car park. Philip would read out, okay, it's Paramount Vantage. They just basically make films about two people sitting on a park bench. What have we got? They've got no money. You know, and you'd go in and you'd pitch something really indie. And then it was like, okay, now we're going to see Paramount. The last film they made was about two frat boys stuck together who body swap. You know, it's like, okay, what do we got? What do we got? Magical, magical. I don't know, I don't know. And so we were going in and we were having all these meetings. At the beginning of the week, he'd set up like 10 meetings for us. And as the meeting went on, we had like 25 and he kept adding meetings. And we were like, where are these meetings coming from? And he said, it's got around town. You girls give good meeting. He said in those words, in those words. And we were like, what does that mean? Because it doesn't sound great. And he was like, well, normally writers are like a geeky guy in a baseball cap or two geeky guys in baseball caps that just look at the floor and won't change any of their ideas. You're so malleable. You're like, yeah, that sounds great. You're spitballing ideas with them. We're like, we have no ideas. We're happy to, of course we're happy to spitball. We made it up in the car park. We're not holding on to this. So um, we go around to all these places. It's so much fun. We're just so excited to be there. We're going into these big studios like that look like singing in the rain with the big gates and there's Oscars in the cafeteria. It's fun. It's really, really fun. And we're amazed we're in the game. We're amazed we're in the game in any way, shape or form. And the last meeting we have, we're told this is the most art house production company in the whole of Hollywood. Basically, as far as I can make out, this production company just made love in the times of cholera over and over again. They, they, would, they adapted fancy books. And we were like, well, we haven't adapted anything. Why do they want to see us? And they're like, oh, you give good meeting. They just heard about you. Yeah, okay. So we go in and we've come up with this idea that we think, you know, is like a feels like an indie idea. It's not a great idea. Look, looking back, it's a plot from Frasier, probably. Um, we came up with it in the car park. Don't judge me. It's basically about two heterosexual couples and the wife from this couple and the husband from this couple went to college together and, in fact, had a fling, but their partners don't know. And the other couple who don't know each other. Man from couple A and woman from couple B make it to this cottage in upstate New York for the New Year's Eve celebration. They get snowed in and the other man and woman mismatched couple get stuck at O'Hare Airport and they have to stay in a hotel room. So now we've got the wrong man and the wrong woman in two locations, both snowed in. I mean, that's cheap, right? If anyone here is a producer, you're like, yeah, we can make money out of that. Um, So we pitch it. And the guy, young guy, he goes, I think my boss is really going to love this. Up until now, all the development people we had met who'd wanted to meet us were, to be honest with you, women who thought we could solve their relationship problems because we'd written a romantic comedy. (laughs) I'm not making that up. Nearly all of them were like, he lives in New York, I live in LA. He's very whiny, but, you know, he does want children, so I don't know. (laughs) And I feel like he's like Max in your script. I don't know, should I go to New York to be with him? No, we want you to make a movie with us here. What the fuck? (laughs) Under no circumstances, go to New York. This guy sounds like a loser. Drop him. Um, So this this guy, this is actually one of the first men we'd met. And uh, he took us in to see his boss. And his boss was like, you know the guy in the orange advert with the big cigar? This man would have had a big cigar if smoking had still been allowed in California. He comes in and he goes, excuse me, Pete. And Pete's having a meeting with another guy, by the way. These girls have just sold a script to Fox Searchlight and they have an idea I think you're really going to like. And this guy, he looks up with his big imaginary cigar and and his penis in the other hand and he says, (laughs) basically, and he goes, huh, you sold a script to Searchlight, did you? Who's your agent? And we go, oh, we don't have an agent. We've only got a manager. You're right, you don't need a manager. You need an agent. How much is this manager taking from you? And we're like, oh, 15%. 15%? That's bullshit. You get an agent, you tell him you're going to give him 5%, then you tell him to go fuck himself. 
I am not making any of this up, but I was looking around going, has our manager played a joke on us? And is there a candid camera here? Like, anyway, then he looks at this other guy he's having a meeting with and he goes, here, this guy, Simon, he's your new agent. He's from ICM. He's the best in the business. He just kicked shit out of me on this deal. We went five rounds on this table. He kicked shit out of me. And then the other guy goes, but he was, you were hard to kick shit out of. All right, okay. And then they kept like, there was some kind of blokey back and forth frat house thing where they basically got their penises out and measured them on the table. And so I just eventually went, oh, well, hello, Simon. Apparently you're a new agent, so I would like you to take 5% and go fuck yourself. And Pete looked at me and went, huh, so you're funny. It's like... And he went, how long's your pitch? We went, five, five, five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, five minutes. And he went, make it three. So we start pitching this, you know, two couple get stuck in the O'Han, oh, the other couple, the main couple that we're focusing on that don't know each other. They are in a log cabin in upstate New York and they are snowed in and they cannot get out. And I swear to God, he looked at us and said, could it be on the beach in Brazil? I got a lot of money down there. Beautiful weather down there. We went, well, no, not really, because the only thing we have is that they are snowed in. And he went, you tell me a love story set on the beach in Brazil. I won't just develop that movie. I'll make that movie. And we went, so on the beach in Brazil. The other couple can't get to them because they're snowed in, but we really don't see them that much. We see this couple, and there they are in this idyllic location. They get up in the morning, their partners aren't there. They're now getting to know each other. It's so weird because their partners know each other. They go down to the beach together, they have breakfast. And he's like, and what are they talking about? And we went, well, they're talking about flirtation and the nature of monogamy. And he looked at us and went, monogamy? I can't sell monogamy. Sex is what I can sell. You tell me a sexual awakening story set on the beach in Brazil. I won't just develop that movie. I'll make that movie. And we went, okay, this, this isn't for you. But we can write something for you. And he went, great, write something for me. Go away, come back with a pitch. I want it to be about sexual awakening of a man, obviously. You don't need to say that. Of course of a man. A sexual awakening of a woman. Who cares if a woman's sexually asleep? Nobody in Hollywood. Nobody there gives a fuck about a sleeping, a sleeping libido if it's female. They don't want to see that. I can see it, they hit the snooze. So, and he's like, but you know, I want women to write it. The reason is the reason I'm asking you guys, because um, I don't want men to write it, because uh, if you ask men to write sexual awakening on a beach in Brazil, you know what they're gonna write? Porn. I don't want porn, not porn. Magical realism. You know, like chocolate with Judy Dench, where the wind blows things in and shit? Where the wind blows things in and shit. Magical realism, not porn. So we go away. This is our last meeting. We have to go back to London. So we go away and we're on Skype with Monica coming up with this pitch and we come up with this really lovely idea. So we pitch it over the phone. He's completely silent. And at the end he goes, you girls nailed it. Do you have a lawyer? We went, yeah, I think we have a lawyer. We can get a lawyer. Good, because I eat lawyers for breakfast. And cliches, apparently. (laughs) And then he said, but a couple of notes on the script. All these women you have in it, having the sex, None of them can be under 21. And we went, why? And he went, because you don't want to watch your daughter fucking. It's disgusting. (laughs) And then he went, and none of them can be over 30. And we went, why? And he went, because you don't want to watch a woman over 30 fucking. It's disgusting. (laughs) And there was just such a long silence that he said, I don't think the girls like that, Dylan. We were like, you know Sex in the City, it's a pretty big show. It's all about women over 30 fucking. No one thinks it's disgusting. He was like, I hate that show. <laughs> of course you do. It involves feminine sexual awakening. <laughs> and then he said, and this guy in it that hasn't been laid for 10 years because he's been caring for his wife? And we went, yeah. He went, make it five. And we went, why? And he said, because no guy is not getting laid. After five years, I don't care how much in love you are, you're not getting laid. 
at home, you're getting laid somewhere. It's unrealistic. You want the wind to blow things in and shit? You want magical realism like chocolate with Judy Dench? And the audience cannot stretch their imagination to see a man who cannot have sex for six years because he's caring for his wife who he's in love with? That is correct. He said we had a deal and then he dragged it on and on and on and he kept saying after can, after this, after that, after this, after that. And my manager was getting angry because he said people in Hollywood fob you off all the time and they say yes when they don't really mean yes but they don't say the words you've got a deal unless you've got a deal. It's really bad practice. And I don't know what's going on. And then there was all the big financial crash and everyone got nervous and he was like, I don't think it's happening. I don't know. But he said we've got a deal and he should formally <laughs> renounce that. Anyway, <laughs> one day... We got a call from LA. It was in the trade magazines there that he, the same guy, had announced a picture that was an adaptation of The Anatomist, which was a book about the man who discovered the clitoris. <laughs> That's how it was pitched in Variety. The man who discovered the clitoris. He discovered it. Like it was an island, an uninhabited island. He discovered it all on his own. Somehow, the only book that really should be about the awakening of the sleeping female libido turns out to have a male hero. And he said, and I quote, in Variety, it's going to be magical realism, like chocolate. And we all said at the same time, not porn. Thank you very much. Welcome to the microphone, the wonderful Abby Hurst. I'm just going to tell you a little funny story about live recordings. And this is a classic example of the accidental live recordings that I do because Deborah said to me, Do you know, would you come on and, and co host Guilty Feminist? And I was like, yeah, it's a podcast. It'll be me and Deborah and a microphone and maybe one or two guests and I can sort of say hello and say one or two things and then piss off and let them get on with it. And that's how I ended up in front of 400 of you here at BFI in South Bank, <laughs> desperately trying not to panic. And that made me think of, I think, the resourcefulness of women when we're under pressure and... I had a little rash, a little outbreak of accidental speeches last year as a result of someone again saying to me, hey, why don't you come to this conference with me? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll come to a conference with you. I've spoken quite a lot at my industry equity conferences. And this conference was much, much more regimented than the ones I've been to before. And it was filled with mostly sort of cis, white, middle-aged men in black power suits. Now, my first error was confusing my dates so I rocked up directly from some other event that I had been to. And basically, instead of it's like somebody coming with, you know, like a knife to a gun fright. I rocked up in my party frock to the men in their black important suits. So I had my little long blue skirt with a slit up the front and a big white blouse with fluffy little sleeves on and my red polka dot, enormously high wedge heels to try to make it look like I am actually not the smallest Scotswoman in the world. And then the conference is very formal. It was televised live. So nobody was allowed to move when somebody was speaking. You had to wait until a break in between the speakers. And then down at the front, there was the stage and there was God and the two disciples, also known as the president, the chairman and the vice president. And then a podium on the other side for the speaker. And on the back, like this, a huge televised screen so that if, like me, you're smaller than the podium, you can still be seen. So I'm sitting there and I was suddenly like, God, I really need the toilet because I'd come from London. I hadn't been to the loo since half past eight this morning. This was hours later and I'm like, I really, really, really need to go. So I did the international sign to my friend for I need the loo, you know, that kind of pointy thing. And she was like, yeah, okay. And the speaker stopped and she got up and went down the aisle. So I was like, oh, here we go, off to the toilets, fantastic. And she walked onto the stage <laughs> and up onto the podium, at which point I was like, oh, crap. So I'm standing there in that kind of 
duck position when you like you don't want to stand or move. And the telly guy at the back by this stage is like, go the way, go the way. And the first row, go the way, I can't see. So I was like, ah. So I sat down. At which point the president on the stage sort of looks at me and clocks my red polka dot ridiculously high shoes and kind of, I like to think, smiled sympathetically, but he might have been laughing at me. And then I was like, well, what's my friend talking about anyway? She wasn't speaking in English. And I had left my translation headset on the table behind because I had thought I was going to the toilet. And I was like, no, fuck it. I am not going to be that stereotypical woman that's just like, oh, sorry, didn't mean to be here, just need the toilet. I was like, I'm going to say something, and I'm going to say something about women, and I'm going to say something about bullying and sexual harassment. I don't know how, because I don't know what they're talking about, because it's a different language, and I don't know what the fuck's going on, but I'm going to say it anyway. So I found an agenda in English, and I was like, oh, arse. As my friend's coming off the stage to applause, I realise that the agenda topic is ethical procurement policy, the government stance on it with particular respect to the food manufacturing industry. <laughs> I know, right? I'm like, yes, of course, that absolutely qualifies me to talk about this. Not a problem, I've got this. So on I waft to the stage, and somehow, I genuinely don't know how, but somehow I managed to link ethical procurement in the food manufacturing industry to the Welsh Assembly government's film fund and the lack of definition in the Ofcom guidelines about on-screen, above-the-line-and-below-the-line talent, leading, therefore, to corruption and misspending and how, in fact, this might look like it's all about food manufacturing, but actually it's about women's sexual harassment, bullying, corruption, and all of us, let's join together. Thank you, Red Shoes. Hello, Guilty Feminists. It's Deborah. I am touring with the Guilty Feminist, Sydney, Brisbane, the Gold Coast, Melbourne, Christchurch, Wellington and Auckland. And if you go to guiltyfeminist.com, you can find details of all the shows. Some have sold out, but you can go on a wait list and some there are tickets still for. I am from the Gold Coast. I was born and raised there and that's one that's not sold out. Uh, So if you'd like to come and fill that out and support, I would really be happy and excited. Grace Petrie, Uh, who you will know from the podcast, who sings Black Tie tonight, amongst other wonderful songs, is coming with me. It's going to be a true celebration. We're going to have music every night. It's going to be awesome. The Guilty Feminist is headlining the WOW Festival, Women of the World, on Saturday, the 7th of March. Get in there, get to other events at WOW, and come and see us at the Royal Festival Hall. You can get tickets at southbankcentre.co.uk. There's going to be some incredible co-hosts and guests. And the Guilty Feminist Tour of the UK, the same as we had last year but with different material, kicks off on the 1st of May at the Hammersmith Apollo in London. We are coming, hopefully somewhere near you. It's going to be mammoth, even bigger than last year. So please visit guiltyfeminist.com. Get your tickets now before it sells out. It is selling really quickly. The wonderful Jessica foster Q, who you know and love from The Guilty Feminist, is touring her Edinburgh Award-nominated super-feminist show, Hench, that you will have heard all about all over the United Kingdom. If you want to go, and you do, go to jessicafosterq.com to see dates. If you get a Brexit 50p, Choose Love would absolutely love to have it. If you could donate it, that would be absolutely awesome. And finally, we have merchandise and all the money from the merchandise goes into our pot for good things. So if you go to our website, you can see T-shirts, aprons, tea towels, notebooks, all sorts of fun, guilty feminist stuff with different slogans on. They make great gifts and fun things for yourself to inspire a new feminist 2020. My book is also there and available in all good bookshops. And now back to the podcast. Our guests today are the producer and lead actor and the director of the new feature film, written by Deborah Francis <laughs> Say My Name. That's three job titles, but just two amazing people because the woman was doing two jobs, obviously. Please welcome to the stage, Lisa Bruno and Jason. <laughs> Thank you. 
Hello, hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. Welcome. Hi. Welcome to The Guilty Feminist. Thank you. So I really want to talk about how this came to pass. We discovered today this weird Bermuda Triangle of Hamilton the Musical without which there would be no movie. And I don't know if you know all of this, Jay. He doesn't know this. I mean, I know all of it, but I, I know, you know definitely some, some of, of it. it. Yeah. Yeah, you, I know you know my part. I don't think you know Lisa's part. So it was probably about four years ago when Hamilton premiered on Broadway in New York. And I went to see it. And a huge depression washed over me. I had been an actress for many years, doing lots of little guest starring roles in lots of different TV shows. I've done some movies here and there, but just nothing was really happening. Then I had children, and then I turned 40. Can I just say that's mm-hmm. a very female pitching of your career? You were in The Patriot, which was a huge blockbuster, and you were the lead in it. You were like, if I had a guy up here, like, oh... So I was doing movies, like big ones, blockbusters, but uh, I wasn't fulfilled deep in my heart. That's what he would say. I was doing bits and pieces and guest starring roles. Like, pitch that again. I know, Tell but us. the Patriot is really anti-Britain. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> know your I audience, people. Yeah, I wasn't going to mention that. Oh, because it's all like the British yeah, are coming? it's the whole American Revolution. Yeah. We're over it. Really. Okay, all right, cool. <laughs> Too soon, guys? Too soon? (laughs) They revolted? What? (laughs) Listen, honestly, the way it's worked out, you're welcome to it. (laughs) The current administration. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so so you were were doing films and television and good roles. Yeah. And then you had children. Yes, and then I turned 40. And then everyone finds out you turn 40 and then you get nothing except maybe you go for the role of the crying wife or the best friend, but no more lead roles and stuff unless you're like a huge, huge star. So anyway, so I see Hamilton and this sadness comes over me because I was so blown away by it that I said, what am I doing with my life? I have so much more I want to do. And I decided then and there, I want to make my own thing. I need to do this for myself because I love what I do and it's just been so unfulfilling. And you are not alone, Lisa. Like right now in Hollywood, it's like the prize for women is to become a producer. And it was never that way. Elizabeth Taylor wasn't like, oh, I'll just start up a little production company. It was like, that wasn't what was happening. But now... If you look at, like, the Reese Witherspoon models, has anyone seen that amazing uh, monologue that she did at the Glamour Awards? It went viral for a while about Mm -hmm. that female-driven movies are big box office. It's not like some little bleeding heart side project. She's like, look how much The Hunger Games has made. And she goes through and she looks at all the projects and she's like, she said she was told she was going to lose her shirt setting up her company. And she's only doing female-driven projects. She's adapting novels. But it's basically, unless there's a woman in the lead or women in the lead, she's just not interested. It's just not what she wants to do. But it's the same. Like, Mindy Carling's just made this amazing film with Emma Thompson called Late Night. And it's all about the female experience of late-night comedy in America. Viola Davis is doing it. Jennifer Aniston's got her own production company. Like, women are bored of the roles that they're getting. The reason I was interested when Jay told me about Lisa is she's doing, like, an indie version of that. I was so amazed when I heard this from Lisa today because this film, certainly Say My Name, would not have been made without Hamilton because I was in New York with Tom Selinski, my husband, on the last week when the original cast was there. I'd seen it before because a friend of mine had a friend in it. So I was like, we're never going to see this original cast ever again unless we go, like, let's just kind of suck it up and find a way to get tickets and, like, pay over the odds or whatever – And Tom was like, this is ridiculous. Like, why are we doing this? And the only time we could get tickets was a matinee. And then we had to go straight to the airport. And Meg, Jay's wife, we were old friends, said, I'm going to have to come with you and mind your suitcases at a cafe because you've got huge suitcases. You can't take them into a Broadway theater. There's no room for those. So she very kindly did that. And because of that, because of my desperate desire to see Hamilton before the cast changed, on the way in the taxi, Meg said, Jay's looking for a script and it's just making conversation and it's got this element, this element, this element. I said, that sounds like Say My Name. And she said, yeah, but that script's not available. I was like, oh, it's available. <laughs> it's the most available script 
I mean, that's what it's mainly got going for it. It's availability. <laughs> she was like, well, he tried to make it. I said, yeah, but it was optioned in, a bunch of men have optioned it over 10 years and it's got me a lot of other work, but no one's actually made it. So Jay then said, yeah, I'd love to make that script. So he sent it to Lisa. If we hadn't gone to Hamilton, because Tom was like, I can't believe you spent this money on these tickets. And I was like, I know. But if I had not, we wouldn't have got to make a movie. So see how right I was. <laughs> so yeah, without Lynn Mamoru. See Hamilton, Tom, it's, it's playing now, I think. <laughs> Jay didn't like it that much. I did, um, it was great. <laughs> there is a kind of new wave of female cinema coming through that is just frustrated women sick of playing these roles who are just going, fuck this, I'm just going to make something that I want to make. What I was excited by was that Jay then said to me, yeah, Lisa's really keen on making this movie. And he said, okay, I want to make it. She said, I want to start shooting August 1st, but if not September and if not December. And I was like, okay, so January or never. And I can't explain it, but we started shooting on August 1st. I feel like my mantra that I've taken away from this is to make a film with a strong female hero, you need a strong female hero. Because I don't know how many men have made me promises over the years, both in cinema and romantically. (laughs) And they have not kept those promises. So that's how it came about. Jay, we should probably bring you in here. Because you are, I don't know if you've noticed, a man. Uh, I'm discreetly aware of that right now, actually. (laughs) Oh, really? You're in the minority? How does that feel? (laughs) I'm a a Jew from Alabama, so I'm used to it. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, So, Jay, you are doing a project at the moment, a play, where you're the only man on the job. And this was, I mean, there's a lot of men in this. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of men in this film. But partly because they get mixed up with bad guys. And firstly, I wrote it 10 years ago, I think, before I was thinking in this way. But secondly, I don't really want to write women as the kind of people who run into room with guns and starts punching people because that's not true. That's rare. That's rare. I don't want to just replace everyone with a woman, even when, like, if I was going to write a film about an evil dictator, I wouldn't write about a woman. Do you know what? We're not that. Um, so, but you are right. You've often made female driven projects. Why do you do that, Jay? Do you know? It's been brought to my attention a lot that I do this, and I don't think it's intentional. I just don't like men very much. <laughs> I don't like the stories they tell. I don't like, have you ever shared a bathroom with a man, anybody? Yeah. Um, the closest people in my life have been women. My best friends have been women. The people I've looked up to have been women. Uh, the people I want to work with the most happen to be women. I haven't thought through why that is. Uh, it just sort of happened that way. It's only since we've made the movie I've thought of this as a female-driven project. I never really thought of it that way. I thought of Jay and Lisa and Deborah making a movie together. I guess me, the women I've worked with are more generous collaborators than the men I've worked with. They've been more open to exploring ideas. They've been less ego-driven, although some of them really have been. Uh, there are exceptions, I think. And I guess that's, it's the people I've met and, and have sort of kept in my life have been, for the majority, women. Hey. I, I, thank you. Well, we're delighted. And I kind of, I wish more men felt that way. And I think that we need male directors and male writers writing human stories and not assuming that human equals male and that women are niche. We definitely need more female writers and directors. We definitely need more female voices. But we also need the people who have the power and influence who are in that central spot to actually start thinking outside the really lazy gender norms, which is if they're doing something interesting, they're a man. And if they're in a support role, they're female. So what was it like then being in a film and playing Mary and also producing it? Well, what's really interesting, you know, there's the pre-production, production, production, and now post-production, releasing the movie. And I've gotten to a point where I'm so far removed from the character and me playing that character that sometimes I forget that I'm actually in it. And people talk about my character to me. And it's like we're just talking about the character because I'm completely in producer mode. And I've had to separate myself, you know, when we tested the movie, if... You know, people write cards and they say something about me that they didn't like. It's like, oh, they didn't like Mary. I, don't, I can't take it personally. I would. I would, take, <laughs> I would not be able to do that. Don't show me any cards that say anything <laughs> bad about me. I'm not interested in seeing them. What do those people know? They're free on a Tuesday afternoon to come and see a free movie. Fuck them. <laughs> I feel very strongly about that. Very strongly. 
I mean, I take criticism well in the main. <laughs> How about you, Abby? Can you take criticism? Well, I can take it, but I'm not sure if the givers of said criticism can take my response to oh, the Fair criticism. enough, fair enough. <laughs> you can take it, but there's a return. And as a clear region, I feel that that's my birthright to be able to, to just headbutt. If you piss me off, it's not who I am. Fair enough, fair enough. One thing that I really love the way that there's a powerful woman at the heart of this film who can get the man into trouble and get him out of trouble, and he's the resistor. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, that usually in a film or a television show, if you listen to the lead female character, there would be no plot because she's saying, don't go out the door, Greg. There might be a story out there. Um, Please don't, don't. Come home. Come home. You're in a plot. There's no need for that. Come home where nothing will happen to anybody. Even in a sitcom, even in Modern Family, the mother's going, you can't have a trampoline and fireworks. There might be comedy there. Um, You know, there's a big tradition of it. It's just we haven't done it for a long time in Screwball. Um, But one thing that I really wanted to write that I hadn't seen on the screen was how women get themselves out of trouble. Because it used to be, in old movies, a man will get you out of trouble when you scream, distress, distress. And now, for feminist reasons, women tend to kick and punch their way out of situations. And the thing is, in my life, I just know so few women with the upper body strength to karate their way out of daily situations. But we all, all the women I know, we talk about it. We live with this low-level fear and just awareness. It's not even a fear all the time, but just awareness. Like, what does he mean by that? Is he coming closer And I was really excited to make this movie with... Mary uses her smarts all the time. She's bonding. She gets involved with all sorts of bad guys and bad situations. She's like prodding the ego. She's undermining at the right time. She's bonding at the right time. She's drawing them to her. She's playing them like a cello. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that? About directing that and playing that? Yeah, I would say two quick things about directing. Well, I mean, it was in the script, so that was easy. Um... (laughs) But one thing I want to say about the dynamic of this movie that really works, there's two sort of spins on typecasting. There's Lisa, who's over 40, who gets to play the sexy, tough, driving character. I don't know what Lisa's doing for women over 40. She looks fucking 32. I don't think this ageism story, Lisa's No, but Lisa's this is the same. That, that, that's, <laughs> as far as who casts who and how people get of roles course, and that kind of thing. but I'm just and, saying. And what roles are available, you know, she can play that role better than anyone. It's her role. But also, I would say, for the man, Nick Blood, who does cop shows, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Tough guy. In life, a bit of a bro. He wouldn't mind me saying that. He's a dude. He lives in Southern California now, so he's totally a dude. Stop me doing a gynecology joke. <laughs> he did. No, no. But no one ever asked him to play the sensitive, sort of timid guy who's scared of this and enamored by this woman who's taking the lead. And for actors like that, it was a huge deal for him to be able to play this role because no one ever offered him that kind of thing. And I think it, it goes really in, in how you think you're casting, but how you think how you write your pieces. And because he was relishing that chance to do that, and uh, Lisa was relishing the chance to do that, we had a really interesting dynamic on set that was more than actors just playing roles. It was actors doing the things that they normally don't get to do that are built into why they got an acting to begin with. You create an environment like that on a set, you're going to have a very successful product in the end because people are going to be really committed to it and doing their best work. And then conversations like this happen about how women solve problems, how men solve problems, and how that's maybe against what they normally play. And it's, they, they, we think through the stuff as we're working, and then the conversation becomes bigger and the movie becomes richer. Um, but it starts with the material. It starts with the opportunity to do that. And Abby, your role, she was also a woman that didn't take no for an answer and knew what she wanted. Mm. But her scene with Mary, they're two powerful women that kind of have this stand-up. What was that like to play? Because you were coming in for a short shoot yeah. with a cast that, you know, and a director that you know, was on a long shoot. How was that to come in and play? Well, it's always frightening when you're joining something that's already running because it's already a train in motion. It's got its momentum. It's got its rhythm. People have bonded and you're coming into that. So I was terrified, but it was such a lovely scene. And it was lovely to have a real scene with two funny, clever, smart women dealing with a quandary that they have in a ballsy, kind of empathetic, sympathetic, fun way. Because that never happens. It never happens. Everything is so stereotypical. Usually the woman is, as you say, she's this wafty little thing that doesn't know how to cope and needs to phone the friend or phone the boyfriend or all of the above twice. And that's the other thing, like you were saying, about people being allowed to be actors, because that's the other thing that really annoys me. Casting directors can occasionally just go for a very obvious option. And 
a lot of times people are cast because they are in real life quite similar to the character that they're playing. And because I think, they've got the right waist-to-hip ratio. Because <laughs> they don't have a big bum. Um, but we are actors. We train. <laughs> it's not a problem. We train to change. That's the point of being an actor. It is not going on set and playing a role that is like you. It's going on set and becoming what the writer and the director want. And I have really big issues with people who go on set and say, oh, I don't think my character would say that. Bollocks. My job is to make my character say that in a realistic fashion. And if I can't, I don't expect to rewrite it or change the lines. I go away and I figure out a way of making it real. That's the actor's job. If you so, need the writer to, I can come up with a brilliant line about a gynecologist. Though. So there's, <laughs> there's always that. Wearing those tight jeans. Yeah. But it, it was lovely to get on that and, <laughs> and have the chance to actually act. Is there anything else you want this audience to know as the producer about this film? It's a really charming, lovely movie, and I think it will touch everyone in a different way. As you can see in real life, I'm probably more of the opposite character. I'm much more shy and timid than Mary, who's very ballsy and very sexual and very out there and very... So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, as soon as we figure out how you can see it... We will let you know, and Deborah will let you know. Well, you can see it tomorrow night. Oh, um, yes. Because we've got the premiere tomorrow night. If you want to see it at its absolute best, if you see it tomorrow night, you're going to think it's about 10% better than it is because <laughs> this screen is so amazing and the sound is so amazing. But I would really love it if you would come and watch it with me because, honestly, it's so hard. Like, it's been 10 years of could it be on the beach in Brazil. And so <laughs> it's such a big deal. This particular episode is a little bit about one film. But honestly, it's so hard as a woman. It's like Mad Men, the amount of things that are said to you, the amount of yachts I've stood on in Cannes, where you have to go down. It's not glamorous. It's not fun. It's horrible. I have come back from Cannes, from the film festival, where producers have pushed me out to pitch to the worst human beings I can possibly... I can't even describe. I had to go down there once to try and pitch Say My Name. And there was a man who went right in front of me said, um, they brought me a Russian prostitute and she wasn't even as good looking as my wife. And I thought, what's the point? Literally, 10 years I've nearly given up so many times. I'd kind of given up when this happened because I couldn't be in that environment anymore. I was so sick of it. And I was like, how can female stories, how can they thrive in this atmosphere? I've come back from Cannes and gone into, once I came back and I, I didn't leave the house for four days and I just cried for four days. It was so horrible. The environment can be so toxic. And I was just like, why? But no, we need to push through. I'm determined to push through because I truly believe that women should be allowed to be writers. They should be allowed to be producers. They should be able to tell these stories. And it's been so hard to get here. So if anybody can come and be with us tomorrow night when it's first on this big screen, because I do not have time for a phone call with all of you, I need you to know I'm wearing a long black dress with a plunging neckline. But... (laughs) Hello Guilty Feminists, it's Jessica Regan here. I'm very happy to announce some upcoming dates for our Big Speeches workshops in 2020. So in the first week in March, we're going to be doing two workshops on the 1st of March and the 8th of March, both on Sundays at the Rose and Crown Theatre in Walthamstow. Please note this venue has stairs. We're also doing three dates in a new venue called Hold Space, which is near Highbury Islington Tube on the 29th of March, the 25th of April and the 10th of May. This venue is fully accessible. We're looking forward to seeing you there. So please do go online, look on the website guiltyfeminist.com to book and for more details and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Please welcome to the stage, Leah Sapin from Human Rights Watch Film Festival. <laughs> Leah. Hi. Hello. Oh, I'm not like the serious one. It's like no, human rights fine. abuses. and We always need a bit of that at The Guilty Feminist. It's important too. Could you please tell us, you've got a film festival on this week? Yes. We're running until the 22nd this Friday. Well, I think it's interesting what you were saying about hard to get female 
directed films made. And we have a couple of amazing documentaries where there's one film called Anbesa that plays with narrative form, but it's a documentary based in Ethiopia. And she made it all herself. So she basically, with documentaries, you're often finding it hard to get funding. So a lot of women just go and do everything. She shot, produced, directed, edited all of it herself. And it's an incredible film focused on a small boy in Ethiopia who's just kind of figuring out life. The politics are in the background with this film, which is a really interesting way of being able to bring out human rights in the conversation to follow, but not necessarily beating you over the head with the film itself. And if people are listening at home, what's the website that they can go to to find out what else you're doing throughout the year and where else they might be able to see these films? Sure. So the website is ff.hrw.org. It's part of Human Rights Watch, is the larger organisation. And we do have screenings throughout the year in multiple cities. Some of them are going to be released throughout the year, so they'll get a Netflix or there's a way to watch them. Um, But we'll have all that information up on our Twitter page as well, which is HRW Film Festival. Great. We consider 500 films a year just by what's out there. And we are looking for people who are underrepresented in the film industry. So half of our films, usually over half of our films are women. So I'm a bit disappointed with this year's program it's only half yeah and actually over half are made by people who are from the region or from the community that they're covering so we're really trying to get if not the filmmakers from that place then people centered in that film uh, to speak for themselves great okay well we will support it um it's ff dot hrw hrw dot org dot org okay leah thank you so much thank you thanks for having me Big round of applause for Leah Sapin. Thank you. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host, Abby Hurst, and our very special guests, Lisa Brenner and Jay Stern. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. Music was by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Selinski for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Anna and Sophie and everyone at the BFI, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. <laughs> Tomorrow night is the premiere. There's going to be a um, step and repeat. You can stand in front of the branding boards and stuff on the carpet and have your picture taken. Um, I will loiter around. You can have your picture taken with me if you want. I don't know. You, you might not want that. You don't have to have it. Um, and uh, it's going to be uh, a really exciting evening. We're going to have a Q&A.